We pick up in Mark 14 as we travel through the entire Gospel of Mark. I mentioned that we'll be moving into the book of Acts in uh, just a a couple of months, uh, maybe two months or so by the time we finish the Gospel of Mark. We left off in verse 31. That means we'll pick up in verse 32 of the 14th chapter of Mark. Jesus had already predicted Judas' betrayal. We'll see that actually happen uh, in this study today. We'll be in the Garden of Gethsemane for Jesus uh, praying, surrendering his will to his fathers. That's surrender number one of today. Surrender number two of today is the disciples surrendering to sleep. Uh, Some of you may experience that today. Surrender number three is Jesus surrendering to his captors and his betrayers. So if someone at lunch today, you leave here and you go to lunch at, at a restaurant here in Palmyra and you see someone else that goes to a different church and they say, well, what was the sermon about at your church today? And you have that look like, oh, I cannot remember. It was at least 15 minutes ago. I, sometimes someone will ask me, what did you preach on this morning? I don't know. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. Uh, but today the word is surrender. So if you can remember one word today, it's the word surrender. And I went over those three surrenders. Uh, Sometimes we look at surrender maybe as a negative thing. It's seen as a weak thing where you're not supposed to surrender. And so I don't know how you conceive of the word surrender. But in certain contexts, I would agree. Surrendering is not the thing to do. But in other contexts, I think surrendering is exactly what is needed. And we'll see some of those as we go through the passage today. Again, Judas' betrayal has been predicted. Peter's denial has been predicted. And, and as Jesus also said, all of the disciples would, would leave him, would scatter because of what's going to happen to him. And that's where we leave off. They're heading from the temple area across what's called the Kidron Valley. I think if my geography serves me right, is to the east of uh, the city of Jerusalem. And they go down through the Kidron Valley and there's a... A brook there that when they slaughter the lambs for the Passover, the, the blood that is, uh, is drained out is emptied into the brook. And so the water takes on this bloody look. And so there, Jesus, this lamb who is about to be slain, uh, is now crossing over that brook. And I just imagine as he steps over it, looking down and seeing that blood mingling with that water and what, it, what thoughts it would spur of anticipation in his own mind. So, sometimes the anticipation of a thing is almost worse than the thing itself. And so Jesus, all this in anticipation of what's coming upon him, uh, what's about to happen to him. So they cross over the Kidron Valley up onto the Mount of Olives where there is a, uh, an olive grove or a garden, as John calls it. Let's pick up in verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So this place, Gethsemane, when we go on our trips to Israel, We uh, go and visit the garden that's still there with the olive trees. Olive trees can be as much as uh, on the island of Crete. They have some that are 3,000 years old. 3,000 years old. They're extremely resistant to disease. They're extremely resistant to fire and drought. So they're very hardy trees. I'm not sure if any of the ones actually now in the Garden of Gethsemane are old enough to have been there to have witnessed, been a silent witness to these scenes. Some suggest that maybe some of those trees were around that long. Uh, Hard to know for sure. But nonetheless, the olive trees there in this garden where Jesus would commonly go with his disciples to spend some time, we have a worship service there when we go to Israel. It's very moving to be in that place 
praying and reading about uh, what we read about right here. Uh, Gethsemane means an olive press, which would go along with your olive grove. Olive trees are very valuable. Uh, When you go to Israel, uh, you can often find uh, olive wood trinkets, things that are made, carved out of olive wood, crosses, soap dishes, uh, elaborate statues, things like that. So it's good for the wood. They also use the wood for cooking, for baking the most yummy bread I've ever had in my life. I had in a in a restaurant on the Sea of Galilee in Israel. I mean to tell you, it was good. And the, the woman that owns the restaurant took me out back and said, I've got to show you this. And the oven where they bake this bread, it's, they only use olive wood as the wood to, to fire the oven where they bake the bread. Delicious. But none of that stuff is what makes uh, the olive tree its most valuable. It's the olive oil that makes it most valuable. And the way that they get the olive oil, nowadays, of course, they have all kinds of modern technology. But after collecting the olives... You would uh, gather them together and you'd put them sort of in a basin. There's one large stone at the bottom and then another large stone that would be rolled around in this basin on top of it, crushing not just the flesh of the olive, but also the pit in the olive. So all that is crushed up together. And then you take that uh, pulpy mix and they layer it on mats, like filter mats, and they stack them up, you know, five, six feet high. And then they have a, a weighted piece that comes down on that. And as the weight is pressing down on that, on that pulp and on those mats, the oil begins to seep out and it's collected in a collecting place. So when we talk about the oil press or the olive press there, and we understand how olive oil is made. Uh, by the way, interesting factoid. Uh, this one's free. Won't keep you out of heaven if you don't know this. Uh, cold-pressed olive oil. How many of you have looked at that and said, I wonder what that means? What is cold-pressed olive oil? Well, when the stones that are used go around, they create friction, and it warms up the the olive pulp there to a certain temperature, uh, which after a certain temperature, uh, the experts in this say that the olive oil actually loses some of its flavor quality. So to cold-press olive oil is to keep it below a certain temperature to keep its maximum flavor. Aren't you glad you know that? All right, you can say I learned something. Surrender. That not, when someone asks you, what was the sermon about? Don't say, you know about cold-pressed olive oil? No, that's not it. Sur- it's about surrendering. And, and in this garden, that's, what, that's why it's so significant. Uh, one reason so significant that Jesus could have gone anywhere to pray with his disciples after the Lord's Supper. But he goes to a garden. And again, John, in his gospel, uses the word garden. Uh, Mark just tells us he went to Gethsemane, or the oil press, or the olive press, excuse me, but significant because it's a place of tremendous pressure. Tremendous pressure. I'll, I'll tell you now, it, it comes later in the story, but so much pressure that just as that olive oil is being squeezed out of those, that olive pulp, uh, so Jesus, recorded by Dr. Luke in his account of this, this account, by the way, in all four Gospels, Dr. Luke uh, lets us know that Jesus suffered in the garden from a condition called hematidrosis, from tremendous pressure. Luke tells us that his actually, his um, blood, his capillaries were bursting on the surface of his skin or just under the surface of his skin, and the blood that would leak out of those would be mingled with his sweat. And that's, again, a medical condition called hematidrosis when we read about Luke saying he was sweating great drops of blood and that he was also in agony. So this is a place of tremendous pressure. And just as I read that first line, then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. I think in our lives, in in your life, in my life, I think oftentimes 
we come to that place called Gethsemane. We come to that place of squeezing, of testing, of trial, where it's just very, very heavy, very uh, challenging. I mean, Jesus, the words he uses here about my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Some of you have been there. You've walked through that. Some of you more than once. And so you know what it feels like. Everybody, I believe, has to have at least one Gethsemane moment in their life. Not necessarily something that happens to you, but it's that experience of dying to yourself. That wrestling that happens when you are, your will is being given over to the will of God. When you are yielding, when you are surrendering. And sometimes there's a great pressure in that. There's pressure from family. There's an internal pressure from your own dreams and your own desires. And, and you've got to say, God, be patient with me while I die to myself, to my own desires. And so everybody at some point deals with Gethsemane. It's that place of the pressure of dying to yourself so that you can live for the will of God. And that can be a hard place to go through sometimes. That's number one reason that a garden is important, that this garden is important. Number two reason is because everything really began in a garden, didn't it? These two gardens are supposed to kind of be set in contrast to one another because it was in that first garden where Adam had an option. He was given a command, don't eat from the fruit of that tree. And what did he do? He blew it. He blew it. He disobeyed and many became sinners. So in a similar garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the one man, the the new Adam, the man of the Spirit, not the man of the flesh, through his obedience, many will be saved. Many will come to life. So we have these, the first Adam and the last Adam contrasted. These two gardens contrasted. In the first garden, it's all messed up. And it's in this garden, Jesus makes the choice so they can all be fixed up. And he says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So they all come over the brook Kidron. They're all in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus gives them a command there. He says, sit here while I pray. Now he's told them to do a number of things as they've been following him over the last three years. Um, I want you to, you know, just recently, he said, go and you'll find a donkey and prepare the, the Passover. Uh, I want you to go out by twos and go and do ministry. But this is a command I think I could keep. Sit here. I think I can do that one. I think I got a chance at actually doing that right. But the problem is, is that's actually one of the hardest commandments for us to keep. That'd be actually really hard because we are doers. And it's hard for us to sit still. But the problem is that sometimes God says to you, I want you to sit still. Now there's some of you that sit still too much and you need to get going. But some of you are going too much and you need to be sitting This past Friday night, Helga was out of town. She'd flown down to Florida to see her parents. And so I find myself on the weeks that she goes away to visit her parents, I get a lot of ministry time done. I just visit with people and do all the things that, you know, I would do if I was single. But I'm not single. So uh, I got to, you know, be sensitive to that. So I just have time and I go visit and I do ministry. And Friday night, the Lord was just like, you know, Steve, I just want you to sit tonight with me. I said, Lord, but there's so much to do. He said, sit here. And so uh, so I said, okay, I'm going to stay home. I had a nice night at home by myself. And that meant for me, no TV on. My tendency is, well, if I'm home, I'll at least accomplish something academic. I'll watch a documentary. Or I'll listen to a TED Talk or something. I'll do something for my brain in that way. 
And the, and the Lord really convicted me about that, just convicted me to, to just have a quiet night with him. And I don't know when the last time is you had a quiet night to just sit still and be with the Lord. But sometimes that's what he asks us for. If you can't ever sit still with him, you'll never have something to minister out of. I've heard it said years ago, if your output is greater than your intake, then your upkeep will be your downfall. You can work that out on the way home. So he tells the disciples, sit there, verse 33, he takes three, Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch or be vigilant. So he takes those three, he says, guys, they're his closest three. I want you to come with me a little bit farther into the garden. I want you to sit here with me and be vigilant. Just watch. And I appreciate, you know, Jesus had these 12 disciples. Now one of them is betraying him. They're all going to forsake him. But here, these three that have been with him at some of his most intimate times, these were the three that were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. These are the three that we see him taking uh, more intimately with him. And here they are. And he just says, you know, I'm, I'm so heavy. My soul is so distressed right now. Even to death, he says, that I want you guys to come and just be near me. Do you have friends like that in your life? Do you have friends that, that you know that are going to just be there with you in your time of need? And do you have, do you have, have you cultivated those friendships? Or do you know that there is someone in your life to whom you will be that friend, that when they are sorrowful, that you are there to just be with them? To just be, don't say a word. Sometimes we're so tempted to just talk, right? We just want to fix it. We just want to cure it. We want to offer some kind of consolation and it just comes out all wrong and some of you have had people say that stuff to you i mean they meant well but it just was like not helpful at the time but he just says i want you guys to just to just sit here with me to just stay here with me and watch be vigilant interesting that jesus would describe himself in this way his soul exceedingly sorrowful i mean we figure you know this is god in the flesh he ought to be like monstrosity of of assurance and of of you know, courage and all that. And yet we see him all, in all of his humanity here. What do you think has got him so troubled? I mean, pastor, are you really going to ask that question? He's about to face the cross. Well, yeah, I know that. But the Bible tells us in Hebrews that he endured the pain. He, he despised the shame, but he endured it for the joy that was set before him. God had laid out before him joy. Like, like setting a, a, a table with dinner. Like, here's a meal. I'm setting it before you. And it's that, that's what joy was set before Jesus. And so he was willing to endure the pain and the shame, despising it, but willing to endure it because of the joy that was set before him. I think the greater thing, more than the pain, and, and that would be bad enough, more than the ridicule, and that would be bad enough, more than the betrayal, and that would be bad enough. In the book of Job, Job says something that just the first time I read it, really caught my attention. Job has lost his family, his 10 children, I believe, all killed. His wealth has been stolen, his possessions gone, even his health ruined. And then I, I think it's chapter 3, I can't remember exactly of Job. Job says, that which I have feared the most has come upon me. 
Maybe you've had that situation. Maybe it's a death of a loved one, death of a child, a diagnosis with cancer, and you just, oh, that's the thing I feared the most. And now it's happened. I don't think any of that was it for Jesus. I think that what Job feared, and if you read it, you'll find out what Job feared was not the loss of this or the loss of that, not the material. What Job feared and what it seemed that was happening in Job's life was God had turned against him. That's what Job feared, that God would somehow turn against him. That's scarier than to have God against you. And the Bible tells us, and we like to quote it, if God is for me, who can be against me? But the Bible also tells us that if you are not for God, you are against him. And if you're against God, he's against you. But if you draw close to God, he draws close to you. So there's great promise there. There's great hope there. But this was Job's fear. I think this is the issue that Jesus is having to to deal with his whole life. His whole ministry, he and God, he and the Father have just walked in wonderful unity. I mean, whatever the Father did, that's what Jesus did. Whatever the Father said, that's what Jesus said. I mean, it's complete harmony and unity. And now Jesus has to face this tremendous weight of the the wrath of God against the sinfulness of man all taken on himself. He becomes, in a way, the embodiment of sin so that God can pour out all of the judgment, all the wrath that was due to me and due to you and due to our relatives in the past and due to our relatives in the future, as long as the Lord tarries, that all these things poured out on him as he would even pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that period of where where God was pouring out that wrath against sin on him, he was willingly taking it. But I think that is a pain and a depth of sorrow that none of us could even imagine. The most sorrowful thing you've been through probably doesn't even come close to comparing to the weight, the combined weight of all of the sin of humanity. And I think that's what's got him. Verse 35 says, He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So we're going to be led into uh, Jesus' prayer here in the garden, an intense prayer. Um, he, he leaves them to sit, to stay, and to watch. He goes on a little farther. They must have been within earshot because Peter, before he falls asleep, hears this prayer. He hears Jesus praying this because he relates it to Mark who records it in the gospel. As he goes on, and, and Peter first sees him, he sees his posture. He sees him fall to the ground. I mean, I'm speaking to a, a room full of human beings, and the Bible tells us, and we know it in practice, that in this world you will have tribulation. We've been through some tough stuff. And, and what is the right posture for prayer, by the way? I mean, is there a certain posture of prayer where God is more likely to hear me? I mean, maybe if I'm standing and looking up, my voice is directed up and he can hear it better. Because if I'm down like this and I'm speaking at the ground and he can't hear it there. Or maybe I have to yell louder. In Jesus' name! Maybe I have to do that and that, and that makes it work. What's the posture for prayer? Well, here, for Jesus... He fell to the ground. That's a great posture for prayer when that's how you feel. Sometimes you're just elated. You're overjoyed. Something came through. The job happened. The check showed up in the mail, whatever it was. And you're like, oh, Lord, you're so good. You provide again. I didn't think you were going to do it, but you've been faithful again. I can't believe I doubted you. And you're just like overjoyed. And so there your posture might be, oh, you know, praise the Lord. But there's times where you've been going through something heavy. You've felt that Garden of Gethsemane pressure on you. 
that crushing. And it's almost like you, it's a tangible crushing. And it's almost like you can't even lift your head. The Pharisee and the, and the, the tax collector, or the, the, um, yeah, the tax collector who's in the, who's in the temple praying, and he couldn't even lift his head to the Lord. And so Jesus is, in, that's his posture of prayer. And he prays that this hour might pass from him. He's not speaking about 60 minutes of time. He's speaking about this time period in his life, the time of his crucifixion, his arrest, his betrayal, his crucifixion, and his, his burial, and all that. This, this thing that he's got to go through, this hour, this, this time, this situation, that this would pass from him. And we get the, the verbiage to that prayer. He says, Abba, Father. Now, he's, it's not because he likes a 70s band called Abba. Uh, my dad was a big fan, and so I grew up listening to that. But Abba, not Abba, Abba is the Hebrew word, the endearing term that a child would use to talk to their father, Daddy. So Jesus coming in the garden, on, on, his, on the ground, the prayer begins with Daddy. Tender, personal. He had taught the disciples how to pray. They had asked him, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? Or teach us to pray? And he taught them the Our Father who art in heaven. And now he's teaching them to pray in a different way. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Notice that he begins his prayer with something that's true about God. If you want to have a successful prayer life, if you want to have a deep prayer life, if you want to have a ministering, a prayer life that ministers to your soul, you have to start your prayer life with something that's true about God, especially when you're in the garden, especially when you're going through it. He says, God, I know something that's true about you. All things are possible with you. All things are possible. You never, we never in prayer compromise the character of God. That's where you start your prayer. And you, and you take, you carry it through with the word of God. We'll see how Jesus does that in just a moment. You might have to pray, God, I don't know what I'm going through. I don't know why I'm going through this. I don't know what's happening. But here's what I know. God, I, just, I know you are loving. And I know that you are powerful. And that's where I start. I mean, I don't know. I might not know anything else. Anytime you pray a truth about God, you know your prayer is accurate. And sometimes it's, that it's you need to be reminded of those things in your prayer. So Jesus starts that way. He says, you know, all things are possible for you. And then he says, take this cup away from me. So stop right there for a second. God, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away. Are you surprised he asked that? I mean, doesn't that seem out of character for Jesus to even pray that? Like, wouldn't he, shouldn't he be praying, God, you know, strengthen me? And, and by the way, angels, another gospel writer does record that as Jesus is praying this, angels come and strengthen him. But I just, it's an, it's an unexpected thing. It's a, it's a strange prayer to hear Jesus say, if it's possible, take this cup from me. I don't want to have to go through this. And we are thankful that in his humanity, he prays that because we've prayed that. You ever been through something? I don't want to go through this. I know what's coming next. And the anticipation of it is, is killing me. And I wish there was, if there, Lord, if there's any other way, I don't want to have to go through this. And Jesus is praying if there's any other way for you to accomplish the salvation of Stephen, of Jerry, you know, of Barbara. If there's any other way to save them, let's do it, Lord. 
And I think he's praying scripturally. Uh, the rabbi that was here a few weeks ago talked about maybe the cup, because he's not speaking of a physical, literal cup. This is figurative language. This is prophetic language. So uh, the cup, was it the, the cup that would have been taken with the Passover, the cup of redemption? Possibly. But I think Jesus is getting his motivation for this prayer, his context for this prayer from Isaiah 51. In Isaiah, Isaiah ministered during the time of the Babylonian captivity. The, uh, the Jews had been disobedient. They had been idolaters. And God says, I'm going to have to bring judgment on you for a time. So he, he judges them. Bab- the Babylonians come, beat up on them really bad, carry them off to captivity for 70 years, and then God releases them to come back. And this is what Isaiah says about that time. Thus says the Lord, th- thus says thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God, that pleadeth the cause of his people. Pay attention. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. So they had been going through judgment, going through discipline, and then this was, it was time for that to stop and God to bring them, you know, to bring them back. He promised them coming back into the land. So he says, I'm going to take that cup, that cup of what? That cup of my fury. And he mentions the dregs, the dregs of the cup. What are the dregs of the cup? The dregs of the cup would have been, it's that, it's that stuff that's left on the bottom that didn't get mixed in. Like if they were drinking wine and it hadn't been filtered fully and you get some of the skin of the wine and, and, and the skin of the grapes, I mean, and wine doesn't have skin. Uh, the skin of the grapes and some of the, you know, the leaves or something that was in there, it'd be down at the bottom, maybe the dregs. And so to drink the dregs means to drink the whole thing in its totality. And so Jesus says, I'm, I'm remembering Isaiah 51, where you took the cup of trembling, the cup of the dregs of the fury of God out of their hands. Thou shalt no more drink it again. I think that's what he's thinking of. God, if there's any other way, like there was then, can you do it? And folks, what do we know? Uh, we know Jesus went to the cross, which means there was no other way. Let me say that again. If there was another way to be saved, God would have said, yes, okay, let's do this thing. If only Harold could live perfectly, but it'll never happen. If only someone else could do, do that, no one else could accomplish it. It was only Jesus. There is no other way, uh, there's no other name under heaven which by, man, which, by which man can be saved, but the name of Jesus Christ. There's no other name. So in, his, in the midst of this prayer, he says, take this cup away from me. But then there is this uh, disclaimer sounds too crude. It is a surrender. There is a surrender. He says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I don't think that's a cop out. Sometimes people will tell you, well, if you pray, you know, well, whatever God wills, that it's a cop out. No, it's not. It's humility. It's a recognition that I don't, Sometimes I ask for stuff that's going to hurt me. And sometimes God gives it to me. <laughs> so that's why I'm careful. Like, I, I'm not God. I don't have the, I don't know the end from the beginning. I don't always understand what exactly. I know all you guys are experts on exactly what should happen in everybody's life. Because we're good at that. Well, I know exactly what he should do. I know exactly what she should do. And there's times where we have some insight into things. And I get that. But there's times where, Lord, I don't know what you want to do. I don't know what you want to do. So I pray what I think I want. And then I say, but Lord, maybe I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, you have freedom to overrule what I just prayed and substitute in your will. 
You see, because sometimes in prayer, we think we're going to prayer to get our will done by God. But sometimes what God wants to happen in prayer is for him to get our heart changed. Some of you know I came into ministry not through seminary and not through having grown up in a home where it was, you know, my dad was a pastor or whatever. Uh, it's kind of the Lord ambushed me one day and I ended up here. Uh, interesting story, but I loved the job I had. I had a job I loved and I saw what God was doing in my life and, you know, just in terms of teaching Bible studies and, and that people were coming. I'm like, well, why are they coming to this Bible study? But I just knew. I knew what God was doing. And so there was this struggle. There was this death to self. Just like Paul said, I die daily. This is a daily thing. I had to die to myself because I said, Lord, I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm successful at it. I'm making great money. I mean, I'm advancing in this field of, uh, that I'm practicing, this trade that I have. And I want to grow old doing that. I want to train my son as an apprentice. And I had the whole thing mapped out. And, and so, but I knew what God was doing. I had to pray this prayer. I had to say, God, not my will. But here's the thing. Uh, the, the guys that I was close to at the time will remember going, me going through that time of wrestling, of dying to myself, where I said, God, you know, or guys, you have to pray with me because God's going to have to change my heart. Because this is what I want to do, but I know what God is doing. So God, I don't want God to bring his heart into alignment with mine. I want God to bring my heart into alignment with his and as I began to pray that, Jesus is going to pray this three times. And you might have to pray that over and over. It could be a relationship that you're in. Maybe one you're supposed to be out of or one you're supposed to stay in. And you, you want to get out of the ones you're supposed to stay in and people get into the ones they're supposed to stay out of. It's all confusing in relationships. But you might have to pray, Lord, I know I shouldn't be in this relationship. I know we're living in sin. I, I know we're doing things we shouldn't. Lord, you need to change my heart. You need to give me strength. You know, show me a church that prays that way. You know, I appreciate prayers for your Aunt Thelma, you know, and her gout out in Arizona. You know, I, I'm not belittling that. I understand. I pray, pray for those things. But show me a church that comes to prayer meeting and says, I am struggling with jealousy. And I know it's wrong. Or I'm struggling with envy. Or I'm struggling with greed. I love money way too much and I'm just, I just need God to change my heart. Wouldn't that be awesome to see God doing, and I know some of you guys pray those things, but to see God doing that spiritual work in our lives. That's when, that's when your life begins to change. That's where you begin to die daily. That's where you begin to actually live. When you surrender that will, you're self-willed and you're doing your thing, and it's hard to watch people do that, isn't it? Like you watch people just, you know, just so hard-headed. Why are we so hard-headed and so stubborn? And we'll push forward with our will and sometimes God says, okay, go ahead. And you go, God, why didn't you stop me? <laughs> I tried. God's word is so good. And, and there's, I don't know what your emotions are telling you. I don't know what Dr. Phil is telling you. I don't know what the psychiatrist is telling you. Nor do I care. The question is, what is God's word telling you? And what does it take for you to bring your will into submission to surrender Surrender to God's will. Because that's when you will actually find life. And that's what Jesus models for us. Then he came, verse 37, 
and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could, Simon just, ah, uh, <laughs> waking up from that. Could you not watch one hour? Some of you are in that place right now. Could you not listen one hour? I'm 45 minutes tops, guaranteed. He says to them, watch, and now he adds, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. They are going to be faced with the temptation to uh, abandon Jesus when he is being arrested. And they are all going to fall into that. They're all going to enter into that temptation because they didn't pray beforehand. They didn't pray when they needed to pray, so they fell when they should have stood. That's a great lesson, isn't it? By the time the trial comes, it's too late. Now, I'm not saying you can't pray then, but the, well, look what Jesus says next. He says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Being tempted isn't the issue. It's entering into it that's the problem. He says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Do you know that about yourself? You know, God is working in us to will and to do for his good pleasure, but my flesh is there too. The spirit is weak, but the flesh it, it just gives it a cave so easy. The flesh just, you don't have to convince it very much. You don't have to spend a lot of time. I mean, it is ready to just cave in in a moment. And I don't think Jesus is talking about the fact that they were sleeping. I think it's talking about that in that temptation time, your flesh is weak. You will give in. You will let go. You will dive in because temptation comes. And you have to be ready beforehand. How do you get ready? You have to maintain a prayer life where you're yielding to God on a daily basis. And then when the temptation comes, your spirit is strong, your flesh it has been dealt with, and then when the temptation comes, it's not that big a deal. You deal with it. You're ready. You've been prayed up so that you don't fall down. I think it's a great principle that we learn. And certainly for Peter, Jesus says to Peter, look, I'm going to pray for you. Remember, you know, you're going to you're going to deny me. Satan's asked to sift you like wheat, but I'm going to pray for you. But that doesn't mean Peter sh shouldn't pray for himself. So Peter, you pray for yourself too. You build yourself up in your most holy faith. That's what Jude uh, said. Building yourself up in your most holy faith. Praying in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Could you not watch one hour? Verse 38. Again, he went and prayed and spoke the same words. So again, Jesus praying the same thing uh, again. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer them. So there he comes to them again, and Peter has nodded off. Now remember, or all three of them have nodded off, it was the Passover. They had already, they'd been up all day. They had had dinner together. Their, their bellies are full of lamb. Years ago, I took a trip to Florida. A guy that I was traveling with loved to drive through the night. Any other maniacs here that like to drive through the night? Man, you guys are nuts. Leave it. He wanted to leave at 8 o'clock at night. I'm like, that's bedtime. You know, we're leaving it. So we leave at 8 o'clock at night. We stop at about three waffle houses along the way down to, to West Palm Beach, Florida. And we do our work when we're down there. And it's time to come home. So we just repeat it in reverse. 8 o'clock. Well, we go to dinner. This was our mistake. We go to dinner at 5 at a barbecue restaurant. And we eat this massive plate of barbecue. And I mean, within an hour, we were both like zonked. You know, just, ah. Oh. I was like, pull over. I can't stay awake. This digestion is happening. It's late at night. And so I feel for these guys. I mean, they are trying. You know how it is. Right now you're feeling it. Your eyes are so heavy. You're trying 
to stay awake and trying to wrestle through the last hour of this sermon. No, just kidding. <laughs> Their eyes were heavy. They didn't even know what to answer him. Uh, 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 it's the lamb? I don't know. Uh, we're tired. There's no coffee. I don't know. Verse 41, then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. And it almost sounds like Jesus is a little mad at them, doesn't it? He's a little upset with them. This is one place where the New King James doesn't do a really great job of translating. The essence isn't that he's angry at them. The essence is that he has now come to terms with, with what's happening in his life. He's prayed through it three times. He's dealt with God. He's surrendered. And now he's ready to move on. And, and for some of you, there's a real lesson just in that. Until you surrender to God, you're still stuck in that thing. You got to pray until God changes your heart. You pray until you get that resolve. And if it's once, great. If it's three times, if it's for a year, pray for God to change your heart about your spouse. Pray for God to change your heart about your boss. Pray for God to change your heart about moving on to the mission field somewhere. But I like Palmyra, but I know what God is doing. Pray for God to change your heart. And then when you get that resolve, peace just comes over you, and you're like, okay, we're ready to go. It's been dealt with. And so now he says to the guys, he says, uh, sleep on is what it says in the King James, I think. Sleep on, and the word that's, it's the way it's translated here, it is enough, actually means get your rest. It's going to be a long night, boys. going to be a lot happening this night. So you guys get your rest. And now instead of them watching over him, he's watching over them. What a good shepherd. In his greatest time of need and pressure and stress, he's watching out for his guys. And then there's a lapse of time. We don't know how long. And then it says, the hour has come. Behold, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So as they were there in the garden, no doubt, we find out in a minute that they're coming with a, a whole cohort of soldiers, which could be between three and 600. They're carrying torches and swords and clubs. And so no doubt they could see this whole entourage coming. And Jesus looks up from, from sitting there with his disciples as they rest and sleep. And he sees them come and he wakes the guys up. He says, okay, guys, it's showtime. Here we go. Verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Remember, Judas had left to go and betray Jesus. He sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. And he's leading now this whole cohort again. Um, I think it's John that uses the terminology uh, of a, uh, it's the Greek word spira, which is a, a Roman cohort of soldiers, again, between three and 600 potentially. Maybe not all of them coming out for this occasion, but certainly a great multitude is what Mark tells us. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and let him, uh, lead him away safely. So here was the sign. When we get into the garden, it's dark and there's shadows from the lights and it's going to be hard to see. And I'm going to show you who Jesus is by kissing him. The one I kissed, that's the guy you grab. Which seems funny that he would have to point Jesus out to them. Like you'd think they would know. He's the one. I've seen the pictures. You've seen the pictures. He's the one with the glowing golden halo. <laughs> Just grab the guy with the frisbee disc over his head. That's the one. Or grab the 
handsome guy. Grab the, grab the guy who's like six foot five, filled with muscles. There's nothing in Christ. The Bible tells us there, there in Isaiah that there was nothing, there was no comeliness, there was no beauty in him that we should die, desire him. People wouldn't follow him because he was so good looking or so popular. He was just an, an average Middle Eastern Jewish man, average Israeli man, except that he was God in the flesh other than that. But he had to, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy, oh boy. So as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. What a way to be betrayed, huh? By a kiss. You find that, sometimes you find that in your life, the people that are kissing up to you. True, they have an agenda. If someone is flattering you beyond what is normal, you know, beyond what is just complimentary, it's one thing when a person compliments you, but if someone is going overboard and flattering you, be careful they probably are going to betray you. They might want something from you. But those friends of yours that tell you the truth, and sometimes it hurts, that means they're your real friends. Your real friends are the ones that will tell you what they, what, what's really going on. They'll tell you what you really need to do. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So he kisses him. We learn from another gospel, I think it's John, where uh, John says that uh, they actually, he asked them, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am, the ego I me in the Greek. And they all, this whole group of soldiers just, boom, hit the deck. Just plowed him over with his word. And like, these are the guys going to arrest him. That's why I say the third surrender. The first one, Jesus surrendering to the will of God in the garden. The second one, the disciples surrendering to their flesh and, and sleep. And third, Jesus surrendering to his betrayers. They didn't take him. He gave himself up. He did it for you. He did it for me. All of this according to his plan. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, Mark doesn't tell us who this, this crazy swordsman is, but John, who has that wonderful little competition with, with Peter, you know, they talk about the race to the tomb, and John says that, uh, that he won in his gospel. You know, I beat Peter. There's this competition. So John tells us, yeah, the guy with the sword cutting off the ear, that was Peter. Mark doesn't tell us why, because Peter is the source for Mark's gospel. Peter says to Mark, let's leave that out. Just one of the disciples, uh, pick one. Drew his sword. Now remember, Peter said, Jesus, I will, I will go with you even to death. But then Peter blew it by sleep. He couldn't even keep awake in a garden, let alone follow Jesus to his death. So I think that now he's awake, he's groggy, he sees this is time for me to prove myself. And he pulls out his sword. And, and as this high priest, the, the servant of the high priest, his name again, John tells us, is Malchus, is evidently walking away with Jesus as they're walking away. Peter decides to attack. How do I know he's walking away? Because Luke, the physician, tells us it was his right ear that got cut off. Doctors pay attention to that stuff. So if Peter was right-handed, and we assume he is, and he takes out his sword and he, he goes for the head and he, he misses somehow, it's dark, he swings wild with it, he's groggy, whatever it is, and boy, talk about, you know, a close shave. He takes off the right ear. If the guy was facing him, he would have taken off his left ear. But it's probably he was turned around walking away, Peter swings, hits the right ear, 
knocks it off. And Luke, the physician, also tells us that Jesus grabbed that ear, blew the dust off of it. Doesn't tell us that. But he says that he took that ear and he healed the servant's ear. He healed Malchus. Because many would say, and I think rightly so, if he hadn't done that, Peter would have been arrested right there, right then. And never would then have betrayed, or excuse me, uh, denied Jesus the three times. So Jesus fixes this mistake. Aren't you glad that sometimes Jesus fixes our mistakes? We swing the sword of the word of God so wildly sometimes. You ever regret something you said to somebody? You quoted scripture with him. You know, you sort of condemned him with it. You sort of hit him over the head with it. It's your spouse or it's your kids or it's your parents or whatever it might be. And you're just, you're just lopping off limbs with the word of God. There's no, no sensitivity, no compassion. Just It's truth. And you're all about truth. Doesn't the Bible say sharing the truth in love? And so it hacks all, you're hacking off people's ears and then someone else comes to try to share about them the, with them the love of God and they're like, ah, don't talk to me. I grew up in this house. My dad, he used to do this. He used to beat us over the head with the Bible all the time. I don't want to hear it. And now we've got to pray that Jesus heals those ears. And some of you have Jesus-healed ears. Uh, you, you're now able to hear again the word of God that, was, uh, that you kept at a distance for a long time. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. So it's not like Jesus is a a murderer or he's been there, he's been public. They could have taken him at any time, but they didn't, and now they bring this whole huge army to take him. I'm sure they're saying, look, he slipped away from us before. He ain't getting away again. Now, Normally I would stop there, we'd wrap it up, but we have to go just a few verses farther because there is this very strange little passage here and it really won't tack on easily to the end of, to the beginning of next week's sermon. It really happens here, everything we've talked about in the garden. So let's read just 51 and 52. I'll give you the brief overview and we'll close. Now a certain young man followed him, Jesus, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. We didn't need to know that. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now, aren't you glad you know that? It's like, what in the world is that doing there? Now, I know the Bible says that that all Scripture is God-inspired, but, you know, that's not high on my list of memory verses. Is it on your list of memory verses? It's like, what in the world is that? So let me give you the quick potential rundown. Who is this young man? Many suggest that this is none other than Mark himself, the young man who becomes the writer of this gospel. Well, how in the world did he get involved in the story? Well, as we go through the book of Acts, we'll read about the disciples praying and meeting in the house in the city of a woman named Mary, who has a son named Mark. So it's quite possible that the Last Supper took place in the house of the family of Mark, the writer of this gospel. And it's also quite possible that when Judas went out to betray, he makes the deal, he comes back with the cohort of soldiers, not to the Garden of Gethsemane first, but to Mark's house. Knock, knock, knock. We're all here with our swords and clubs and and torches to take Jesus. And, And the knocking on the door wakes up the family. John, or excuse me, Mark puts on this robe, wraps himself in a in a blanket, answers the door, says, hey, guys, they're not here. They're not here. 
And Judas says, ah, I know where they are. And off they go to the garden to find Jesus. Well, Mark says, I got I to gotta let him know. So he wraps himself in that blanket. He takes off to try to let Jesus know, to warn him that this group is coming to arrest him, but he doesn't make it in time. And there he is. Uh, and, and as this whole thing is going down, uh, everything is busting loose and Jesus is getting arrested. They see Mark and they say, hey, don't we recognize you? And they grab him. And as they try to grab him, he gets away. So he's just, I think uh, you can do with it what you want. I think he's validating his eyewitness to all of these things that happened in the garden. But he's doing it sort of in a literary style. So believe it, don't believe it. That's the best I got. You got a better suggestion. Uh, Keep it to yourself. (laughs) We'll study this again in 13 years when we go back through the New Testament. Uh, Amen? Amen. Uh, Phil, if you would bring your praise team back up. So uh, leaving on that note of fleeing away naked. um, Interesting that the Bible talks about all things being naked and open before the eyes of the Lord. And so I, I want to close with a challenge. We've talked about surrendering. I opened by saying, you know, maybe surrendering is a bad thing in some contexts, but maybe it's a really good thing in others. Jesus would say, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he has to deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. There is no other way to live the Christian life than surrendering your will to his, than surrendering your life to his. See, if you love your life, I mean, I got a great plan. By the time I'm 30, I'm going to be a millionaire, and then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. You got it all planned out. You can have that life, but you better enjoy it because it's all you're going to have. Because once you die, you'll enter into judgment and eternal death. So make the most of it. But if you're willing to surrender your life in this world for Jesus' sake, to give it to him, then you'll keep it for eternity. And you won't be disappointed. I can guarantee you personally, as a horseshoer, my back was starting to hurt. My knees were starting to hurt. God is just, you know, he brought me into this new life and he's given me ministry and he's given me so many opportunities I never would have had. I don't look back and go, well, I really missed that job I was doing. I really, I still enjoy it. But nothing compares to the life that the Lord has given me. And so maybe many of you are going, amen, I know that. But maybe there's one, maybe there's one here who today needs to surrender. Maybe it's surrender fresh for the first time, just giving up your life. You've got addictions, you've got heartaches, you've got dysfunction, and you're just trying to solve it all on your own. Your own, you're just making your own plans and figuring it out yourself. And God is wanting to say to you personally today, not your will, but my will be done. Surrender. So if that's you, then I'm just going to be up here at the end of the service just after we close with the song. And I, I urge you, I beg you, wave the white flag, wave the spiritual white flag and submit your will to God. It, it will change your life forever. Amen? Amen.